just as the kids' church here going out, don't forget that the first Sunday of November and the first Sunday of December, kids' church is out for the whole of the service. And I don't know whether it's my imagination, but it seems like kids' church is growing. So that's fantastic. And thanks, parents, for bringing your kids. And, uh, you know, we've, we've been parents. We're still parents, but they're not kids anymore. And uh, so we understand that, you know, Sunday morning, sometimes it seems to go particularly wrong in terms of getting, getting them ready and all of those sorts of things. I was just talking to Simon at the back, and there's something that washes over kids that we can't put into words. I believe it prepares them for school. I believe that it prepares them for the social context they're going to be in. So just thank you for uh, getting ready, bringing your children to church, and uh, we do pray that God will bless them. And, of course, we thank God for Helen and the team that are working so brilliantly in all of that. Uh, This morning, we're just going to run for three weeks on this little series called Daily Dread or Daily Bread. And really, it's just an encouragement to fresh. Uh, whether you've been a Christian just a few weeks or many, many years, and of course, the challenge of Sunday morning ministry is that, by God's grace, it's trying to make the word applicable right across that range. That, in, again, we'd have just a renewed passion for God speaking to us through his word. And uh, I want to read a verse to you this morning from Psalm 119, verse 89. And... Um, <clears throat> It says in the New International Version that your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. The the King James Version says forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Now, over the years, you probably realize that often we sing scripture. Uh, We probably do it, it probably a little less now in terms of literally singing verses, but we often sing scripture. And the authorized version context of that, forever, O Lord, is settled in heaven, takes me back to a chapel service at Bible College over 35 years ago, but it's still fresh in the memory. Because one of the African brothers there uh, began to strike up a song with a particularly uh, resonant African rhythm that said, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And it was just so simple, but God seemed to come in power. can't remember how many times we sang it, but we sang it, and we sang it, and we sang it, and we sang it. And it was just a tremendous sort of expression of the fact that we really believe that, that God's word is settled forever in heaven. And this morning, we just want to have, by God's grace, an opportunity for us to be inspired again with regard to God's word ministering to our lives. Now, it may be for you, and I'll try and, I'll try and address this in a moment or two, it may be for you that for some reason, reading the Bible brings some sense of dread. I'll try and give one or two reasons why we sometimes feel like that in a moment. But we clearly, as a Christian church, as a leadership, as an eldership, don't want it to be dread. We want it to be bread. We want it to minister to our lives. And the Bible says that whilst we are thankful for daily bread in terms of natural sustenance, we can't live by that alone. The clear indication is that we need spiritual bread that will minister to our inner being. And as a church, we don't want to be malnourished. You see, we believe in the ministry, the preaching, and the teaching of the word. We really do. It's a value of this church. It's not just something we do because, well, that's what they do in church in the second part of the meeting. The guys get up and lead some songs. We have an opportunity to give, and then some chap or lady gets up and speaks some words. It's what we're supposed to do. We believe in the ministry of the word. 
The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We believe that as the word of God's declared, something happens. I understand that you may not be able to remember everything that takes place. But we're so thankful in these days for uh, the opportunity to record ministry that can go onto podcast and you can access all the ministry of Arena Church. And if you feel that a particular message is spoken to you, well, why not listen to it again? There are people around the church today that have got the notebooks ready and like to take notes. And I'm a great note taker. Whoever's speaking, whoever's ministering, it helps me to receive something from God's word. And all of that's fantastic as well. But beyond and above all of that, we also believe that God literally can change our hearts. He can bring something by revelation, by impartation from the word of God this morning that changes us forever. You see, true ministry, friends, is not talking about God. It's confronting us with God. It's God speaking to us. It's God making his word real in our lives. And all across this room, it's all right, this is going to trip me up in a moment. There we go. And all across this room, there are people on many, many occasions that have come to the house of God and received something from God that has changed them forever. I say all that because it can't just be about that. It can't just be about the ministry of the word on a Sunday because by the time you get to next week, you're going to be starving and you'll get fed again. But it's not the way to live. Imagine today having a a three-course Sunday roast. You know, you, you wrap it all off with apple pie and custard. Whoa, you know, I mean... I mean, you know, just imagine. But then somebody says to you, mate, that's it till next Sunday. Yeah. It's a long week. It's a long week with nothing to eat. So we're, we're impassioned about thinking about what God wants to say to the church by preparing well, by digging deep, by sharing it with a passion. But it's not just about that. And if you just rely on that, the danger is that you become malnourished. And so you become weak and enfeebled and spiritually listless and it's not the heart of God. And so today in a moment, I'm going to try and present a few bigger pictures. Then next week, we'll talk about a few practicals. And then the week after that, someone's going to bring and declare their journey of how the word of God has shaped and helped their life over a number of years to bring them to where God has called them to be. And of course, as we come to church, a community of believers that's actively engaged in the word of God will be something that becomes dynamic. It's interesting this because reading the Bible, it can't be coerced, it can't be controlled, it can't be scrutinized, it can't be any of those things. And by the way, with no intention of doing it, you're not going to get a call from Christian at 6.30 in the morning saying, are you in the word? You know, there were one or two old time pastors that used to do exactly that. One used to ring the young men of his congregation up in the very early hours of the morning and say, are you up praying? You know, get them out of bed. We're not going to do that. And we've no intention of doing it because that's actually not bringing people to maturity. By the way, as I mentioned, Christian, most of you will be aware that him and Caroline are away for the next uh, two or three weeks on holiday and we pray that God will bless them, pray that they'll have a great refreshing time and and, uh, that God will just minister to them. But... As we say all of that, we, we, we want people to come to a place of engaging with the word so that when we fuse together on a Sunday, when we come together with this opportunity to express the community together, which is what Sunday church is all about, something happens that's dynamic, something that is incredible, something that is vibrant because it's a people that are in the word 
of God. You see, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in ever. Forever, but it speaks into the now. That's the beauty of the word. And the Bible is a big book. I'll come to that again in a moment. It's a collection of books. In some respects, it's a, in some respects, it's a library, but it's a library that tells a unique story. You know that the 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, 27 in the New Testament. And uh, it reflects a journey of God, predominantly Hebrew in the Old Testament and New Testament Greek in the New, with a little bit of Aramaic thrown in uh, around it. And the Bible is breathed on by God, breathed on by God to bring a harmony and a unity that makes it absolutely breathtaking. There have been many men and women over the years that have made comments about the Bible. David Livingstone, the great Scottish missionary that broke open territory in Africa, says, all that I am and owe to Jesus Christ has been revealed in the book. Napoleon says the Bible is no mere book, and it really isn't. And Oscar Wilde, certainly not a believer, says, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand that bother me. And God has been speaking to people and speaking to people and speaking to people over countless hundreds of years. And his primary source of communicating to men and women still friends is through the word of God. We believe in prophecy. We want to give room for it as God enables us. We believe in dreams and visions. We believe that God can supernaturally communicate to people. By the way, none of those things will ever run contrary to the word of God. Never. So if somebody's trying to prophesy something that's contrary to the word of God, you can say without any sense of contradiction, it's a false prophecy. It will always come back to the divine revelation of God's words. But the reality is that the primary way that God continues to speak to us, to feed us, and to minister to us is through his word. So why the dread? Why the dread? Well, it's big, isn't it, this Bible? And I brought a big Bible with me today. You know, lots of the guys now bring a Bible onto the platform. It doesn't look like a Bible. It's not a Bible. It's an iPad. But it's an iPad with a Bible on it. And, uh, but I'm still a bit old-fashioned. I like to bring my Bible to the platform. I'm not saying that's wrong, of course. I'm just saying it's me. But it's a big book. A big book. Campbell Morgan, a great preacher of another era, said that you could read the Bible from beginning to end in 80 hours. I wonder if anybody's going to try that this week. No, you've got other things to do. <laughs> 80 hours. I don't know whether that's true or not, but that was his estimating. But it's a big book. And uh, you think, well, where do I start? And how do I imbibe it? Well, it's a little bit like the elephant in the room. You know, you deal with it by one bite at a time. The thing is, sometimes we get so overwhelmed with the vastness of the book that it fills us with dread and we never begin a journey. We never start reading. Or maybe in naivety, you said, you know what? I'm going to start right at the beginning. Well, Genesis was really good. Abraham and Joseph, fantastic. But by the time you got to about Leviticus chapter 10, it did seem a bit, a bit hard work. And, you know. So the reality is this. Don't be overwhelmed by the book. It's a lifetime's reading. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, that you shouldn't be systematically reading through the Bible. We'll come to that next week. Don't just take a, a bite. Be systematic. 
Folks, whatever reason this year, I've set myself up for reading the Bible from beginning to end in a year. I've not done it in 80 hours straight. I've got other things to do. But, but, and it's a challenge. It's a challenge. But don't be overwhelmed by the vastness of the book. And you don't have to start at Genesis. And then you can say this. It's okay. The sword of Damocles is not going to fall from heaven. You are not going to be arrested at the doors and told never to come to the church again. But it's okay to say this. There are parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand. It's okay. I've said it. There are parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand. And the reality is, for instance, sometimes you need to appreciate the genre of what the Bible's being written in. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, there's history, there's poetry, there's prophecy. And sometimes the prophet will use pictures. Prophets do. That's how they see it. Some prophets get pictures every time. It's how they prophesy. And so you've got Ezekiel spinning wheels and... And you've got, you've got that strange sort of prophetic picture in Hosea, which is almost not sort of fit for Sunday morning consumption. And so we could go on. And I encourage you again not to be pushed back because sometimes we feel guilty that we're the only person that's ever lived as a Christian that's found some of the parts of the Bible difficult to understand. Here's the secret, don't tell anybody. But we've all found that. We've all found it. And sometimes you've just got to persevere through. I mean, I'm reading Jeremiah at the moment. Poor bloke. I mean, what a calling. He had to get up every morning and say, you know what, there's judgment coming to this nation. I've just got to the point where they said, we've had enough, we're putting you in prison. You know, I mean, what a, what a journey for this guy. And you have to read it within its context and understand what God's doing. And press through sometimes. Don't be put off. Don't be sort of intimidated. Don't be condemned. Because God's with you and he'll help you increasingly appreciate some of those things that perhaps initially you found difficult to understand. Why the dread? Thirdly, this great thing. Phil, I'd love to read the Bible. I just don't have any time. I just don't have any time. I'm up in the morning getting the kids ready for school. Then I'm going to work. Then I'm coming home. And so it goes on. And we all understand that. Time is such a premium. But here's the truth. We have to intentionally make some time. And I'm not asking you to commit to 80 hours to prove Campbell Morgan right. That you can read it from beginning to end. But every one of us across the room, wherever it suits for us, begins to intentionally make a little bit of time for daily bread to minister to our heart and spirit. Why the dread? Because I'm not sure it's doing me any good. It's okay, you can say that as well. You know, I've read the Bible this week and I'm not sure it's done me any good. I didn't feel bumps on, goosebumps on the back of my neck. I didn't feel as though I wanted to take the world on when I'd read it. I didn't feel particularly pumped up. I'm not sure it's doing me any good. The danger is that if you feel that and allow that to fester in your spirit, guess what? You start reading it because you don't feel it's doing you any good. Here's a question. We've got some wonderful cooks all around the room, both men and women. But imagine, and uh, I live with a, with a great cook. But and sometimes, sometimes I just say, that were incredible. But the truth is, I don't say that every time. You know, I mean, we have beans on toast five times a week. You know. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, sometimes... A day is so frantic that literally, Shannon said, what do you want for your dinner? I said, I've hardly got time for any dinner. I'll just have some beans and toast when I come in tonight. I'm not going, wow, that was absolutely, by the way, I've made it. That was absolutely incredible. Fantastic. 
But you know something, being just good for you. You know. And the reality is that you're not always going to get the wow factor with reading the Bible. But stop reading it and you'll feel the impact. You'll feel the impact. There's times when you just got to read it, receive what it says into your life. You're not always going to get a rhema word every morning because it's a logos word as well. It's a general word that just speaks to doing your life. And that rhema word, which is a specific word for a specific situation, I get a bit worried when people are forever living on a rhema word. You've got a logos word. You've got the general word of God that tells you how to do life. God will give you a rhema. God will give you a spreaking... But he's not going to give you all the time. He just wants you to imbibe the word. So if you felt like that and thought, I'm not going to bother, it will do you good. It really will. And then here's the last one. There's, there's many, but just for this morning. Why the dread? Don't tell anybody. But I missed a day. I got that arena Bible plan this week that took me through Psalm 119 and a bit more. And I missed a day. I got behind. And the condemnation pours in again. And you get that accusing voice saying, you missed a day. You're finished. You'll never be blessed of God. I want to tell you, friends, the kingdom is well able to survive you not reading the Bible for a day. It really is. But if you're doing it day after day after day after day, the kingdom will suffer because you won't contribute to it what God's called from you, and you will suffer also. So we could go on, but I'm trying to ground this right back into the life of church and some of the things that we work through in our daily life. And how easy it is to get distracted. So if we did a survey around the church, all of a sudden you'd realize that for a month, you'd not actually received anything from the word. And it becomes a dread rather than bread. You know, people have literally given their lives for the Bible, friends. It's amazing. Literally. Poured out their lives for the Bible. One of the guys that just touches my heart every time I read about him in history is William Tyndale. He he was passionate about the printing of the word, trying to get the Bible into ordinary people's hands. You might say, well, big deal. But in those days, there was hardly any printing presses. I'm going back six, seven hundred years. And he was hounded out of the UK, had to go and live in Europe because people were so against him. And he paid the ultimate price for his life. The Tyndale Press, I'm not sure whether it still operates, but it was certainly operating until recent times People that were committed to putting Christian literature into people's hands on the back of a huge cost. So for the next few minutes, I want to just, by God's help, and I'm going to run through these really quickly, so don't worry, not going to be too long. But I want to just try and paint some vivid colors on the canvas called the Bible that inspire us afresh. If you felt a bit of dread, if you felt a bit of condemnation, if for some reason you pulled back from it or never got into it, for some of the reasons I've tried to articulate. I want you just to be inspired a little bit. And then next week, we'll try and come to some practicals about how we can really make it work in our life on an everyday, regular basis. So here we go. Seven things that are wonderful about the Bible. Firstly, the claim that it makes. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness, so that every one of us would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, no other book in the Bible makes this claim. This book, the Bible, makes the claim that God has breathed upon it. 66 books written by around about 36 different authors, men and women, over a period of about 1,600 years, 
their own personality, their lifestyle, their circumstance, their situations. But God speaking, breathing upon them, not because they were uh, dictator machines, but the Spirit of God coming upon them to bring something about that we recognize as the Word of God, the canon, the rule, the scriptures. And we don't have time to develop how all that happens. But the breathed Word of God. You know, those of you that are in sales will know that it's good to have a selling point. If you're selling coffee, it's the greatest coffee in the world. If you're selling that washing machine to Andy that's broken down, you know, that it's, it's the greatest washing machine. I used to sell insurance and, and pensions, and the problem was at times you had nothing to show people apart from, you know, well, this is what might happen in the future. And um, so it was, a, it was a little bit less tangible. But the Bible has some incredible selling points. It's accuracy. People have tried to diss its accuracy. But when people have found scrolls historically and compared them with the ones previous to what they had, they've found that the carry-on in terms of accuracy is amazing. It's unity. It all centers around an incredible purpose in our God. It's integrity. It's popularity. It's still the best-selling book in the world. It's continuity. It's harmony. It's credibility. It's authenticity. It's infallibility. It's authority. It speaks. We live in a nation that is increasingly seeking to become secularized. And one of the things that maybe worries the Christian voice within the nation is that very often, as we've not done in the past, we've increasingly moved not to the word, but from the word, because it carries a weight and authority that actually can impact nations for God's glory. So don't just look upon this book, you know, alongside something else. It's the breathed word of God. Secondly, in terms of painting these big pictures, it is a fa- it, it is, it's that we need to come to the Word because of the foundation that it gives. Right at the end of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells a story, which he often did. And this story was in connection with the previous three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, often known as the Sermon on the Mount, or the, or, 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 or the, the, the Manifesto of the Kingdom. And Jesus had laid out some amazing principles. People wanted political upheaval. He said, I'm not bringing that. I'm bringing the Kingdom. And here's some of the principles of living out the rule of God in your life. Right at the end of it, he told the story. Some of you will know it well. It's a very simple story. It's a story that perhaps Helen shares with the kids in kids' church on occasions. But two guys were building. One was building on rock and one was building on sand. Interestingly, not only were they both building, but they were both buffeted because the storm came to both houses. The the house that was built upon the, the rock, the firm foundation stood tall. And the house that was built on the shallow foundation crashed to the ground. And Jesus said, I've told that story because everything that I've been teaching you regarding the kingdom is this. That if you will hear my word and implement it into your lives, when the storms come, you'll be able to stand strong because you will have a firm foundation. Our little basic discipleship course, the foundational course that gets people moving in the word is digging deep to build tall. The taller that you want to build going God, the, the deeper you need to big, let God dig the foundations into your life. And interestingly, Jesus encourages people there to hear the word. Let's not just be taken up with interpretation. Let's be passionate about application to our lives. And then we can sing songs like one that we sing in church on occasions that says, when the oceans rise and thunder roar, I will soar with you above the storm. Father, you are king over all the floods. I will be still and know that you are God. 
Friends, I'd love to say as a pastor today that if you're a Christian, it means that you're never going to get a storm in your life. But frankly, it would be crass to say that. And there are people all across this church building this morning that have had to, on occasions, not because they've looked for them, not because they've wanted them, not because they've desired them. And if I can say this, not even because they've deserved them. But sometimes, inexplicably, right out of the blue, storms have blown. Storms have blown. Storms of financial stress, storms of relational breakdown, storms of insecurity in work, storms of illness, and so we could go on. Of course, it doesn't mean that you're any less a believer. It doesn't mean that God's not pleased with you, friends. It's just the fact that we live in a fallen world. And God says that if you will come to a place where you've imbibed that word, where you've let it get into your heart, Even if a storm comes, you'll stand tall for me and never falter because of the foundation that the word gives. Number three, because of the growth it enables. Ephesians chapter four says, be no longer infants, but mature. And the Bible gives us a progression to growth because it describes itself both as milk, but also as meat. You see, so a little baby cannot cope with that three-course dinner that I was talking about earlier. Any more that a strapping, growing 16-year-old lad does not want milk for a perpetual diet. He wants some foods because he's growing. And sometimes, friends, I've seen people be saved two weeks and somebody's got a hold of them and they've got end-time prophetic charts and this is what this means and this is what that... You what? I'm just trying to work out what it means to be a Christian. We need to give people milk. But not stay on the milk, progress to the meat. Remember in Hebrews where the writer got a bit fed up with the people, he says, you know, I want to give you strong food, strong meat, but he says you're forever pulling back and being immature. God wants us to grow up. And the reality is that as leaders in the church, we get a great kick out of the fact, friends, when people begin to negotiate their mature growing up journey. So we know that they're going to the Word. We know that they're spending time with the Lord. We know that they're planted in the house. We know that they're serving out of their gift. That's what God's called us to do. So that we can draw some more people on that need the milk, that they can get onto the meat. And so it goes on and on again. Meat is not you forever wrestling with things that aren't going to do you any good in the growth journey. Meat is simply you imbibing what God is saying to you and saying that's part of my world and my journey. Very early in ministry, many years ago, there was a good family in our church. And one day they invited us to visit some of their relatives that lived in another part of the country. And uh, it was uh, a very difficult day because this particular family had three children. And all of their children suffered from a genetic disorder that stunted their growth. And so I was introduced to a 15-year-old teenage girl that looked six. And it was heart-rending. It was heart-rending. Because for whatever reason, friends, in terms of the natural process of physical maturity, she'd never been able to go there. And sadly, friends, that's a picture that sits over the church of Jesus Christ at times. If I can say it with great respect today, particularly in the Western world, where we've got more of the resource, more of the music, more of the bands, more of the lights, more of the things, the danger is sometimes that we ought to be growing up more and coming to a maturity that God has called us to so that we might serve him out of a passion. Number four, the Bible's worth running to because of the salvation that is proclaimed. In Ephesians, it says that it's by grace that you are saved. What does that word salvation mean? 
Well, in essence, friends, it means to be rescued or to be saved. And there are many examples in life of people that have been plucked from fires and earthquakes and storms and perilous situations. And somebody has become their salvation. One of my favorites in recent times was uh, the, uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, pilot, wonderfully named Chesley Sullenberger. I mean, it could only be in the States, couldn't it? Chesley Sullenberger. But on an everyday flight, internal flight, he's coming out of LaGuardia Airport in New York. The plane that's carrying 155 crew and, and, uh, and passengers, it's a flock of birds, and both engines are completely disarmed in a moment. And you may remember watching it on the, on the, on the, on the, on the TV. Just before he loses contact with uh, traffic control, he said, I'm bringing it down on the Hudson. And so this guy sort of positions the plane as the Hudson River's sort of flying through the edges of New York City. And he brings the plane down, no engines, just a complete feat of his, his understanding what to do, lands it down. Every one of those 155 people was saved because of the skill of the pilot. I watched a documentary on that sometime later, and the guy was describing the physics that were involved, those of you that like those things, to get the plane to land. I think you've got to come down at 17 degrees exact, hit the water. Otherwise, the whole thing would have just capitulated, and everybody would have been sort of scrambling in the water. The salvation... He wrote a great book, apparently, about it and became a bit of a national celebrity. But a salvation to people. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. We get pictures in the local press sometimes of somebody that's been a salvation to somebody. Fantastic stories. But the greatest of all, friends, is that every one of us was lost. And while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. When we're in our rebellion, when we're in our apathy, when we're in our sin... When we didn't give a rip about God, Jesus Christ invaded the world in the power of the cross. And by grace, we are saved. It is amazing. Fifthly, we run to the Bible because of the impact that it makes. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says these wonderful words regarding the word of God. It says that the word of God is quick and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And that it, it divides right into the heart. It gets right into the very core being of who we are. The impact that it makes. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a piece in one of the Saturday papers called The Definite Article. And what it does, it interviews somebody. Sometimes it could be a pop star, it could be a sportsman, it could be a novelist, it could be a playwright. And they ask them some questions about their life to try and open them up a bit. And it's quite fascinating. So, and... One of the things they do is, what's the book that's made the biggest difference in your life? And so they'll, they'll talk about, sometimes it'll be some book nobody's ever heard of, or it'll be War and Peace, you know, because they're still trying to read it. And uh, so he goes on and on. I've not yet read one person that says, actually, it's the Bible. It's the best book I've ever read. It's the book that's made an impact on my life. Maybe we'll get somebody there sometime. But the reality is, friends, that you may have read a novel. You may have read a biography. You may have read something that has had a massive impact upon your life. But no book can have an impact on your life like the Bible. No book can get you from darkness into light. No book can turn around your errant character and shape it and begin to develop it so that it's passionate about being like Jesus. No book can do that. And forgive me for using this cliche again, but it is absolutely true. You see, the problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. And the reality is only the Bible, by being a double-edged sword that can get to the problem of the heart, the inner recesses of the real you, what really makes you chip, and turn it around and begin to shape it in his likeness. It's amazing. Sixthly, 
The Bible's worth running to because of the wisdom that it shares. Proverbs says, get wisdom. 4.5, do not forget my words or turn or swerve from them. When I'm talking about wisdom here, I'm not talking about being a clever, clever intellectual. And by the way, there's no pushback in this church about people pursuing study, whether that's in terms of college or university or adult education, whatever it is, no pushback whatsoever. There's no sort of desire to say that you've got to throw your brains away to become a believer. None of that. But the fact is that you can never, you can never just get to God because of that. In fact, ironically and almost contradictorily, God talks about us not being clever, clever, but fools. He said, Paul said, I'm a fool for Christ's sake. And wisdom comes, in quotes, to fools that are committed to a journey that embrace the wise ways of God that confounds the world. That's the wisdom of the Lord. Of the Lord. And the Bible says, she, wisdom, is the tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay a hold of her, she will bless. Finally, friends, we need to run to the Bible because of the time that it spans. In 1 Peter 1.25, it says that the word of the Lord endures forever. There are people that have so spoken the death knell over the scriptures, it's been amazing. Reminded of Mark Twain, the great American author that was, uh, found his name in, in the obituary column of, the, uh, of, uh, of one of the American papers, even though he'd not died. Uncomfortable place to be, you know. And he said, uh, he said later that the report of my death was greatly exaggerated. And uh, it's true about the Bible, friends. <clears throat> you know that um, Voltaire, the great French philosopher, atheistic philosopher, said that the Bible's not going to last my lifetime. It's interesting that after he died, the French Bible Society took over the place where he lived to print Bibles that went out all over Europe. You see, God's just got an amazing sense of humor. He just loves to do things like that. Albania, where we've got some great connections now through George Ridley, through Rachel Wilson, through Neil and Lou Hudson, heroic missionaries serving in the fields. But they're present in what was then the most atheistic nation in, the, in, in, in Europe, said that he would ban the Bible from that nation. It's not worked. You see, because the word of the Lord endures forever. And we live in a time, friends, where the pace of change in society is phenomenal. It's incredible. Where technology is forevermore moving forward, unabated, and it impacts so many areas of our life. And we cannot have a head-in-the-sand approach to it. Julie will tell you that occasionally, right at the beginning of uh, re-administrating the central area of Assemblies of God, over 140 churches and over 200 ministers, we'd occasionally get somebody saying, can you send me this by post? I'm not on email. Come on. Yeah. I mean, even I'm on email. You know? and, uh, and the reality is, friends, that you know, we may not be able to embrace all of it. We can embrace some of it. But you see, things are moving forward. Things are changing. The way people communicate is incredible. But here's the truth. The word of the Lord endures forever. It will never become outdated. It will never become outmoded. It will never become expendable. It will never become extinct. And God's looking for a generation to arise, even a young generation in our own church, that will commit to the endless enduring word of God. They may communicate it a little bit more differently. They may bring their style and their way. But the reality is, young men and women that are rooted in the power of the adoring word of God will make a difference in their generation. He's destined to do so. Forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. The passion of this series is simply to lift off us any sense of dread. To take away, to wash away forever any sense of condemnation. To, to not send anybody out of here today thinking they're a second-rate believer 
because they missed Wednesday this week. But the reality is, friends, that it is also a passionate cry from the leadership of our church that we'd be people that are committed to the Word of God, the enduring Word of God. It's a renewed call not to dread it, but to embrace it and allow it to become living bread into your lives. Be inspired afresh today with regard to the Bible, the claims that it makes. It's breathed on by the Lord. The foundation that it gives, even in the stormy times. The help to bring us to maturity. The salvation that it brings that no other book can minister. The impact that ministers deep into our hearts. The wisdom, the wise ways of God, even to people sometimes that are determined by others as foolish. And the enduring quality that lasts far beyond our lifetime far beyond all that God's got for us in this earth, because it lasts forever. A word, friends, for the world. A word, a word not only for the world, but for us. A word not only for the world and not only for us, but a word for you and a word for me. Let's let it settle forever, not only in heaven, but also in our hearts. Let's make a fresh commitment to give ourselves to it. And God will change us and change us and change us. Let's pray.